This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everybody, to the official launch event for a new book, Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, which is now available wherever books are sold. Um, and this event, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about the issues in the book and their importance and hopefully get people jazzed to read, talk, discuss, and organize around Palestine and socialism. Um, my name is Brian Bean. I am one of the uh, co-editors and contributors to the book. I'm also an activist here in Chicago um, and have written for a number of different venues, uh, but I am an editor for Rampant Magazine and a part of the Tempest Socialist Collective. And so we have some fantastic comrades here uh, with us who we're going to have a conversation, um, and then we'll have some time for discussions and questions from the audience. Um, so I am joined by Samea Awad who is the other co-editor and contributor to the book. Um, Samea is a Palestinian writer and organizer based in New York City. She's written and spoken extensively on Palestinian liberation, anti-imperialism, Islamophobia, immigration, etc. Uh, she's a co-founder of Against Canary Missing Project, which helps defend student activists who are targeted by blacklists for their uh, Palestinian rights advocacy. And she's currently the director of strategy at the Adala Justice Project. Also joined by Karee Peterson-Smith, who is an activist and researcher who focuses on black liberation, supporting the Palestinian freedom struggle and solidarity against U.S. empire. And Jihad Abu Salim, who is from Gaza, Palestine. His research focuses on Palestinian intellectual, political, and social history with a focus on Gaza. So uh, the format for today's event is... The four of us are going to have a little conversation, probably for about 45 minutes or so, um, and then we'll be taking questions. Um, so people who are following us live, um, if you want to drop a comment instead of the YouTube comment thing, we have some people who will be collating those questions, and then we'll take them at that part of the program, which again will be about 45 minutes or so. Um, then we'll take those questions and answer them, and then we'll have a brief time to come back and have um, folks respond to it. Um, so that's the basic format. I'm excited about this conversation. I'm excited about the book. And so hopefully uh, hopefully y'all are as well. So uh, to get started, um, uh, Sumeya, uh, one of the things that we talked about uh, a bit in the creation of this book was how it was a specific political intervention that came in a, a specific moment. Uh, obviously, one of the aspects of the moment was, I think, what could be termed a doozy of a presidential election. Um, but I think broader than that, uh, we talk about a specific moment in the movement for liberation in Palestine, uh, where there is a new openness to campaigning against Israeli settler colonialism, um, and at the same time, some new hurdles that I think are quite challenging. Um, along with that, we have seen a new popularity of socialism. Um, and I think it's notable that both of these things, you know, a new opening around Palestine and in socialism, is occurring in the United States, which of course is the prime uh, backer of the Israeli state, and in some ways is the capital of capitalism. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of this moment that we're brought the book into, um, why this book and why now? 
Thanks, Brian. Um, can you hear me? Great. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, and thanks to everyone that's that's tuning in. I'm going to start by zooming out a little bit to to answer this question um, and actually take us to, to Palestine right now. And uh, I, I need many, many hours to try to give an accurate representation of what is taking place in Palestine at the moment. But I actually just want to list off a few things that I think we should keep in mind throughout this event. And as we think about what it's going to take to achieve liberation um, and, and what it's going to take to win socialism. So first we have COVID surging across Palestine um, and the death rate very quickly climbing, all the while Palestinians are suffocating under Israel's occupation economy. And this is for Palestinian citizens in Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Gaza, and then the diaspora, the seven million plus refugees um, around the world. So that's one. Um, and this is happening under you know 70 plus years of Israel's military occupation. Um, at the same time, we have uh, Palestinian prisoners uh, who are afforded very little rights um, and that are suffering just, just as prisoners are suffering here with COVID and the lack of health care. Um, we have the indiscriminate killing of Palestinians that is ongoing. Um, and even after death, Palestinians are not given their dignity. Ahmad Arakat, who's in his 20s, and he was shot and killed in August at an Israeli checkpoint, and he has yet to be returned to his family for proper burial. It's been six months. Instead, Israeli authorities are holding his body in a medical lab in Tel Aviv. And just last week, uh, a 13-year-old boy, Ali Abu Aliya, was shot and killed at a protest in occupied West Bank. He was protesting um, a uh, an exclusive Jewish-only settlement um, in, in his city, and he was shot by Israeli soldiers and killed. I think this is all a reminder that no matter what Palestinians do, they're going to be characterized as violent instigators. They're going to be blamed for what happens to them. And their existence, no matter how dismal, is going to be considered a threat. And as a result, their resistance, a chance to indiscriminately slaughter them. And I think we've seen this time and again. Now, all of this is happening while there's also this renewed attack on Palestine advocacy globally with the new definition um, of anti-Semitism, including anti-Zionism. This is a very direct attack on Palestine advocacy and anyone daring to stand up for Palestinian liberation. So that's all happening. Um, but I think it's important to understand that that's happening in the context of this ideological war that Israel is losing. Um, more and more people are questioning Israel's support by big imperialist powers like the United States. Um, and it's no co coincidence that this is ha as this is happening, we're seeing this public shift in opinion where more people are connecting Palestinian liberation, the struggle for Palestine to the struggle against racism, the struggle against climate change, um, the struggle for anti-imperialist feminism, and, and the list goes on. And simultaneously in the U.S., we're seeing this burgeoning socialist movement um, that I think was propelled to the spotlight by figures like Bernie Sanders, by organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America, um, and by this new wave of, of leftists, of, of people radicalizing in the U.S., these generations, this new generation, sorry, um, that's showing us that there is a real socialist left right now in the United States. It's small, but it's growing and growing quickly. And we're seeing victories in the grassroots with campaigns like Tax the Rich, um, campaigns for climate justice, campaigns for Medicare for all. Um, and then we're also seeing some of this in places you would least expect it, right? In city councils, um, even in Congress. So 
this is all the context for this book, right? It's this new emerging socialist movement that is incredibly powerful, albeit still small, um, but with a lot of potential. And at the same time, a worsening of conditions um, on the ground in Palestine as, as Israel really entrenches its military um, occupation. Now, to take us back a little bit to the book, um, there's this idea that, that you know, Brian and I were discussing and, and responding to. There's this idea that socialism and the struggle for Palestinian liberation are two separate things, right? And that they're only now being connected. And this is just, this is remarkably false. Um, and, and the book, I think, does a really good job of dispelling that. Because the reality is that for many generations, Palestinians um, and Arabs across the region actually look to socialism as an alternative and as a framework to approach their struggles, struggles against capitalism, um, against colonialism, um, against dictators and, and, and totalitarianism. And this, this separation be- between these two entities is actually a more recent phenomenon. Um, so socialist politics in the Palestine movement is directly what we're engaging with in this book, um, while recognizing that there are flaws and pitfalls of some of the historical movements and that we're trying to build is actually something new, something that hasn't been achieved yet. Um, But this book is very much rooted in that rich tradition of Arab Marxism, um, of decolonial struggles rooted in anti-capitalism across the region, across the Middle East and North Africa. And I think it's intuitive to think today that creating change in Palestine will definitely require system change and not simply replacing our oppressors. In fact, that's what the Arab revolutions a decade ago and ongoing called for, right? Their demands were, were for a new regime, a new, a new system. Um, and though they didn't explicitly posit a socialist alternative, um, their, theirs was very much an anti-capitalist movement. So building socialism into our Palestine movement will help us understand why the traditional paradigms of negotiations, of dialogue and diplomacy that took place in the 90s with the Oslo Accords, I, I won't get into that, but why all of these actually will never be sufficient in building towards real change. That what we need to think about is actually material change rooted in economic and political systems that are new and that put working class people, put the poor and the oppressed first. Um, so there's two audiences, I think, for the book. Um, The first um, is this growing socialist movement. Um, And I think to them, we want to say, um, and and we're part of that, so to us as well, that we need better internationalist politics, right? That internationalism needs to be the core of our movements. That we're not socialists if our vision for liberation is restricted to one group of people. That it must be liberatory for all. And that means first and foremost, acknowledging that the U.S. became a state through displacing and colonizing existing indigenous nations that were here long before European conquest. Um, And it means standing up against imperialism in all its forms, no matter what country is leading the charge. And I think this is particularly important for the Middle East. It also means demanding an end to this country's spending of billions of dollars to kill people overseas, um, especially at a time when we're seeing every excuse being leveled against working people for why they can't have Medicare for all, for why workers can't have minimum wage, for why the infrastructure of this country is just rapidly crumbling, falling apart. All the while, of course, and the pandemic has made this clear, billionaires um, have added over $900 billion to their net worth just in the last eight months. It's it's why we need to tax the rich. Um, so this is a reminder, the book serves as a reminder that our liberation is tied to the liberation of the working class and oppressed people beyond our borders everywhere. Um, and that's what this socialist movement that's growing in the U.S. really needs to have at its core. 
that we have more in common with the workers in any country on earth than we do with the rulers of our own, regardless of whether or not we share the same language, culture, religion, etc. And I think it's particularly important here in the U.S., because of the political and financial backing that the U.S. provides Israel. Uh, there's a $38 billion military funding deal between the United States and Israel. That's $3.8 billion a year. Um, and I'll, I'll note that Joe Biden in 2016 flew to Israel to make sure that this deal was approved right before um, power transition to Trump. Um, so this is also a reminder that as socialists, we stand with workers and they oppressed the world over. Um, and for Palestine specifically, that means heeding the calls of Palestinians on the ground, the call to, US, to end U.S. military funding, yes, but also the call to boycott Israel. Um, and I think as socialists, we should know this better than most, but you, you never cross a picket line. Um, and so when Palestinians call for a boycott, we boycott. And then when it comes to the Palestine movement, um, I'm running out of time, but I'm going to keep going. Um, I think there's this there's this understanding. I think sorry. I think it's important to understand that um, fighting for the end of colonialism in Palestine, of course, is part of fighting against imperialism, but also it's fighting against capitalism, and that those two needs those two need to be core components um, in in our fight because those are the two things that prop up Israel's settler colonial state. Now, do we need socialism to end Israel's occupation? The answer is no. It's not an if-then equation, right? Perhaps it's possible to end Israel's colonial regime short of socialism and to establish a new state. But we also have to think about what alternative we want to replace it with. Because very, very quickly, we will run into, and, and we already have, the pitfalls of capitalism, right? The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, will come sweeping in with its structural adjustment packages to impose austerity. A wealthy class of Palestinian businessmen and others will take control and, and we are already seeing this today. Um, and that's not what we're fighting for. It certainly shouldn't be what we're fighting for. So integrating anti-capitalism into our decolonial movements is key to building the kind of world we envision, one that won't re reproduce itself from the blood and sweat of its poor. And this underscores the fact that our, our goal isn't to simply replace our oppressors, that having a corrupt ruling class of Palestinian leadership that builds power and wealth at the expense of the Palestinian workers and refugees inside and in the diaspora is not the liberation we're fighting for. So the socialism we invoke in this book offers a set of principles and goals that we can use to navigate the political questions that our movement is facing today, um, especially as they grow and come up against capitalism. And um, we invoke a Marxist tradition that calls for workers to organize and overthrow a system that treats them as disposable clogs. In other words, the fight for Palestinian liberation should be the fight of every socialist standing up against capitalism. And that Palestinian liberation is not just a decolonial struggle. But it's a feminist struggle. It's a climate struggle. It's an indigenous struggle. It's all of our struggles. And the book is an attempt to, to bring that forward. Um, that's, that's essentially what it's calling for. And I'll stop there. Thanks so much, Samaya. That was great. Um, you talked about sort of the importance of solidarity um, internationally and domestically between workers and the oppressed. Um, and so I want to sort of jump from there to talk about another important context for the political environment that we, we enter this book into. Um, and that is the hot summer that we had um, in which there was a nationwide revolt against racism and police violence that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, Curry, in your chapter for the book, you wrote about 
uh, black solidarity with Palestine, um, particularly beginning it by talking about the solidarity that emerged during the previous wave of the movement for black lives in 2014 that began the streets of Ferguson. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of the other piece of that context as far as what does the recent rebellion tell us about what it will take to build a movement against U.S. militarism domestically and abroad? Yeah, it'll um, it'll tell us so many so many things. Um, I I want to just start, you know, first of all, Samay has got me fired up, um, and um, I just want to start out with some some uh, just gratitude um, and celebration celebration of this book. You know, um, gratitude. I'm very proud of you, Brian and Samaya. Um, your editing of this book is such a contribution. Jihad, um, you know, all the all the contributors, Shireen, Tofik, sorry, I can't name everybody, but this is really, um, it's really something special that we've put together. Uh, so everybody should get it and read it and, um, and, uh, and let's win. So what does, what does, what do those revolts, you know, this year tell us about building a movement that can actually challenge U.S. empire that can uh, build solidarity with Palestine and uh, and and be in solidarity with the, the struggle for a free Palestine. It says so many things. I mean, one thing is I just think this summer was such a reminder of the power of black struggle. You know, it, it, it's maybe hard to remember, um, but you know, look, it's been a rough year all around the world and in this place called the United States for sure. There's been lots of ups and downs, but before those uprisings, the conversation, the national conversation was dominated by white nationalist fascist rallies in state capitals to, you know, quote unquote, open up the economy, you know? And that was the, the you know, the, the conversation around COVID and how we're responding to it the terms were being set by Trump and these fascists and then enter these uprisings completely shifted the conversation, uh, not only around COVID, but around racism, around oppression, um, around the nature of this country. I mean, the, these were these were uprisings that, of course, were demanding justice for George Floyd, that, of course, were demanding justice for Breonna Taylor. Uh, but these were uprisings that targeted Confederate statues. You know, that's pointing to the deep roots of anti-Black racism uh, in slavery and the role of slavery in shaping the country. There was a, a, a public mainstream conversation about the origins of U.S. police departments in slave patrols. So this was not only an uprising in the streets, but it was a conversation that was no longer on the terms even even for you know a, a fleeting little while, it was no longer on the terms of the people running this country, and that is not only Trump, um, who you know was so um, incensed by his lack of control that he deployed the military <laughs> um, in various cities, but actually it was also th these uprisings confronted the democratic governments, democratic party governments that run those cities, you know in Minneapolis, in Chicago, um, you know, in New York City, you know, Bill de Blasio, who, when he came into office, is considered this great progressive, you know, that is over. Um, and I think that the Black Lives Matter movement, and in particular, these uprisings, have so much to do with that. Um, it put on the agenda 
the redistribution of wealth. I mean, the, if there was one unifying demand, it's defund the police, right? We're having a conversation about socialism right now, right? These uprisings combined a struggle against oppression with a question of redistributing the wealth. <laughs> okay, that's that's a conversation that socialists are very excited to, to have. That that that's that's our bread and butter, right? That's what it's all. That that is the essence of socialism. Uh, the, 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 that combination of things. So it was incredibly powerful, and it had international resonance immediately. Um, not only because there are so many other examples around the world of oppression that that are familiar, you know, in Palestine. Um, around the same time as George Floyd was murdered, Iyad Halek was murdered by the police in Jerusalem, a Palestinian man with disabilities shot dead um, in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there were uprisings in places like France and Britain, uh, yes, in solidarity with the struggle for justice for George Floyd, but also calling attention to their black folks who are brutalized by the police in those countries. Um, and so there was this resonance and uh, this, this solidarity, it was a wave that, that, um, that went well beyond borders. Um, and it has to be said that there is a resonance um, and a kind of connection, you know, an organic connection when we're talking about the struggle for Palestine in particular. And that's not accidental because the people who run the United States and the people who run you know, the, the Israelis who are currently in power uh, in Palestine, they recognize what they have in common. <laughs> they work together all the time. The U.S. says, we'll give you aid. Israel says, we'll make weapons. You know, um, Israel says, we'll train your police departments. So they they are very much unified. And that's why it's not coincidental that our oppressions look familiar, Right. But that also means that when we resist, there's a kind of convergence. So I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this comment by saying, you know, this comrade of mine um, and, and others on this call, Christian Davis Bailey, um, who pointed out during the uprisings, he said, you know, black revolt is the greatest internal threat to U.S. empire. That really stuck with me. Um, I was thinking about how difficult it was for the people who run this country, how difficult it was for them to govern this country in those weeks and wondering what it would have been like if uprisings on that scale, black up, black led uprisings on that scale had uh, happened in March 2003 when the U.S. was invading Iraq. I don't think they could have gotten away with an invasion. Do you know what I mean? Like they were preoccupied with how do we deal with this black uprising and it hampers their ability to carry out violence um, around the world. So I think the challenge for us is developing a kind of internationalist consciousness in this place and everywhere that sees our fate. Um, as bound together, you know, for those of us fighting for black freedom here, sees our fate as bound with our relatives, that of our relatives in Palestine. Um, and that'll make it much more difficult for the U.S. to support Israel. And uh, that will mean a win for Palestinians. And when Palestinians win, that that when, when the Israeli state is set back and it's a setback for the U.S. state, that's good things for the black freedom struggle, for the indigenous freedom struggle here, for the Palestinian freedom struggle and really for struggles uh, all over the world. Thanks, Curry. That was great. Um, I think one of the things that you were speaking to was the nature of uprising um, and people feeling as though that they can kind of take control of their own destiny from the streets as being something that is infectious, that can spread across borders. Um, and one of the key themes that weaves through the book is um, talking about the necessity of the liberation for Palestine being won by 
the uprising of the Arab working class, not blue ribbon panels of of capitalist governments or you know a so-called peace process that goes on for on and on and on. Um, jihad, your chapter uh, in the book talks takes up the the dynamics of the the Arab Spring revolts and what they mean for Palestine. Um, obviously, I think you know when we were uh, preparing the book, we a second wave we encountered. Um, you know, two years ago. Next week, the, the revolution in Sudan began. Um, Ten years ago, next week, was the self-immolation of Mohamed Bouazizi that sparked the, the first wave of the Arab Spring. Maybe could you talk a little bit about why the risings of the regional masses are so important for liberation in Palestine? Absolutely. Um, thanks again for having me and uh, for this great opportunity. And again, it's a great honor for me to be part of this um, uh, of this book and uh, to be part of this conversation, um, Palestine does not exist in a in a regional vacuum, right? Uh, Palestine exists and is surrounded by um, countries and states and uh, uh, actors who whose decisions, actions, and and the realities in those places um, affect the situation in Palestine. And the same way they do, if not more, um, also the policies and decisions and and visions for what the world should look like and um, uh, from this country affect the region uh, broadly speaking. Um, the bottom line of what I wrote about in the chapter, and this is in response to your question, is that um, without people being able to reclaim sovereignty, and I will get to that in a, in a minute, in the Arab world and in the broader region, uh, with its rich and, di- and diverse ethnicities and cultures and, and backgrounds that surrounds Palestine. Um, and without um, a push towards um, genuine democratic transitions that reflect the wishes of the people, um, and ones that address the major questions in the region, um, it would be hard to imagine that Palestinian liberation would be uh, realized anytime soon. And this is exactly what the uh, uprisings that unfolded in 2011 um, and continue to unfold despite many, many setbacks uh, that they suffered from in multiple Arab countries, um, if not in the entire region surrounding Palestine, have been about. Um, The slogan, bread, freedom, and social justice, speaks to this internationalist, um, universal uh, sense of uh, a need for a change and a vision of what this change looks like. So again, Palestine exists in uh, in a region where there are pressing questions that haven't been resolved yet. And I talk about some of those questions in my chapter, and the list can be endless. But some of those questions are issues of authoritarian authoritarianism, economic development or lack thereof, 
uh, citizenship, sectarianism, the legacy of colonialism, the nature of the state, the relationship between states and citizens, uh, social and economic justice, access to resources, um, uh, ethnic and religious minority rights. Uh, and of course, at the heart and big part of this matrix of issues is the question of Palestine. Um, and in this context, the, uh, you know, like we're talking about um, unfolding resistance to this reality that produces these inequalities and repression, we have witnessed in the past few years a growing alignment um, of anti-democratic, uh, oppressive forces in the region, um, including Israel and some, some uh, of the Gulf states, that openly talk about um, challenging any wish by people in the region to achieve these changes, to realize them. Um, and Palestinians know uh, deep down in their hearts that without resolving those issues, without achieving wins on those fronts, um, Palestine, Palestinian liberation won't be realized. And it's not an irony that when there is a hint of democracy, there is a hint of genuine representation in the Arab world. One of the first manifestations of this reality is that right away we witness um, uh, governments and institutions and media that reflect the streets and the people's support for Palestinian rights. We can see that in Tunisia, and we've seen that in Egypt, but also we've seen what happened in Egypt after the military coup happened in 2013. Um, so the gist of what I'm trying to talk about is that for us here in the U.S., um, there are people who are vested and who are interested in the Palestine question. Um, and, and in good faith or bad faith, sometimes intentionally or unintentionally, they end up viewing Palestine in some sort of a vacuum. And I'm, I'm trying to push against that. Again, in, in, in connection with the, with the broader conversation of this, of this, of, that this book is trying to create, that uh, issues are connected, struggles are linked, um, and uh, and it's all one issue. And last but not least, uh, it's important to understand that from the perspective of un undemocratic and authoritarian and repressive forces in the region, they view Palestine as a threat, even if some of them cynically claim to support it. Because at the end of the day, the Palestinian issue the Palestinian cause has been a mobilizing force, an inspiring force that reminds people of what it means to stand up against power, of what it means to resist. And that's why we're witnessing this assault on Palestine, on Palestinians, the dehumanization of Palestinians and some of the Gulf state-sponsored media um, and some of the uh, uh, counter-revolutionary post-Arab Spring regimes. And they do that for a reason. But at the same time, you know, we see an interesting dialectic unfolding, right? The more they do, the, the more uh, actions like that they do, the more discourse like that they em, em, uh, empower, 
We're witnessing the birth of groups and initiatives by young people all over the Arab, uh, the, the Gulf, all over the Arab world that challenge this and that continue to uphold Palestine as part of this broader agenda for Arab liberation and universal emancipation. Excellent. Thanks so much, Shahad. Um, so we're going to take a couple more uh, questions, uh, and then we're going to add some questions that have been thrown out from our listeners or viewers. I don't know what the exact term is. Um, but uh, I think Jihad talked about the sort of matrix of issues that connect the 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 region um, and how that's connected to Palestine. And sort of building a movement against uh, sort of those forces is uh, building a movement against imperialism, you know, the way in which American capital and military might is expressed around the world. Um, so I want to ask Karee, why do we need to build a movement for imperialism, uh, against imperialism? <laughs> and why is the question of Palestine so important for the construction of that new movement? Yeah, well, imperialism, um, what would you just said about the ways that, that so many injustices are bound together, I think is extremely important, you know, I think it's really important when we talk about, and I think that in many ways this is what the book is about. When we look about look at Palestine, look at the Palestinian freedom struggle, it's not it shouldn't be seen in isolation, you know, unto itself. It's it's embedded in a whole set of relationships. And actually, I think that as with so many things right now in in sort of Trumplandia, there's been a kind of revelation, you know. So I think about, for example, the fact that. Trump brokers this deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates in which the UAE, you know, normalizes relations with Israel. And there's a whole set of implications of that. I mean, the first thing that has to be said, of course, is that this is they call it a peace deal that's supposed to be about peace um, in Palestine with no Palestinians who are who are part of it. Right. Um, but another thing to be said is is. You know, the UAE is a U.S. ally unto itself. Um, and after it reaches this deal, the U.S., the Trump administration wants to uh, do a $23 billion weapons package with the UAE. That's their reward for normalizing relations with Israel. As the UAE, among many other, you know, indefensible things, is carrying out a horrific war in Yemen. So, so here you have all these things are about, like, like just in this one example, you see how, um, you know, the states of the United States, the Israeli state, the UAE are all united. And then people in Palestine, Palestinians, people in Yemen and people in the U.S., we are all bound together too, whether we know it or not, because of these arrangements that are being made. That's how imperialism um, uh, ties us together. Uh, so just as, as one example. So I think it's really important for us to, to build a, a kind of anti-imperialist um, struggle and, and develop anti-imperialist and internationalist um, consciousness, because again, whether we know it or not, our fates are, are, uh, are all bound together. Another thing is, as uh, Sumeya said, and as the book says, and you know, one of the key kind of themes of, of this whole conversation is that the struggle for socialism, the struggle for freedom, inter for, for, for liberation is an international one. And you know, people around the world know that anytime people have a, a social justice struggle anywhere, they not only have to confront 
their local rulers, but they have to confront the United States because the U.S. is in the business of supporting the repression of all freedom struggles. Um, you know, it makes some exceptions when it's convenient <laughs> for the interests of U.S. empire, but those are kind of tactical, short-term uh, things that are really about enshrining the domination of the rich in this country and all over the world. So all struggles for justice all over the world have at least two enemies, their own ruling class and the U.S. ruling class. Um, and again, that's imperialism. And therefore, it's really important for us, uh, particularly for those of us who are located in, in, in this place in the U.S., to, to build a struggle that is not only for our own freedom, but is, you know, linking arms with struggles for justice elsewhere. And that means confronting the people who run this country and stopping uh, that violence. And it, the last thing I'll say is that that whole transnational operation of the U.S. supporting repression of struggles for justice, Israel plays a central role. It has played a central role. It played a role in arming South Africa, the South African apartheid regime, when it was politically inconvenient and difficult for the U.S. and other states to do so. Um, it did the same in the dirty wars of Central America. Uh, and today, it is selling uh, weapons to, to various governments around the world that are oppressing people. It is helping with the militarization uh, that's taking place in, all over the world. So this is how imperialism works, and it's important that we build a transnational struggle against it. Thanks, Corey. Um, so we went very broad, um, and I want to sort of telescope in a little bit and go very um, local um, and to talk about Gaza. Um, so in the movement for Palestine, um, Gaza occupies a special position. Um, I want to sort of take a couple minutes to see if Jihad, if you could talk about that special position of Gaza and why uh, sort of fighting around that and, and, and that sort of context is important for building a movement both both abroad and also here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, you know, the, the, the issues that a place like the Gaza Strip face um, need to be seen through the lens of a sense of urgency, given how difficult the situation there. Um, on the short and long term, uh, you know, currently this year, 2020, is the year that back in 2012, uh, the very effective United Nations, um, being cynical here, predicted that Gaza would be unlivable. Um, and in a way that mocks the definition, because if it is unlivable now, so what what has been done to prevent that. But it is unlivable. It has been. And despite that, people there continue to uh, to stick to what is most precious, right? Life, you know? And um, uh, But it's things are hard. Things are difficult. Uh, with COVID, uh, not, no enough ICU units, uh, not, no enough ventilators. Um, the Gaza Strip is a very small territory. Uh, it represents just 1% of all of historic Palestine. And, and this includes Israel, the West Bank, and the, and the Gaza Strip. So, And there live 2.2 million people. And this number is expected to double in, by 2050. Um, Gaza has one of the highest population densities in the world. Uh, current, the population density now stands at 13,000 people per one square mile which is beyond imagination. And then think about this number doubling in the future, 70% unemployment, total isolation from the outside world. So 
it's there is a sense of urgency and there is a need for people to mobilize and to um, uh, feel that sense of urgency and 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 center it so that it inspires their work in order to to challenge the roots of what has been causing the reality in Gaza to continue the way it is today. Um, and this requires constant work, um, not just seasonal attention when the when the bombs are falling. Because even after the bombs fall, violence continues and it's filled with the passage of time, with the continuation of the blockade that has been imposed for 13 years. Um, so the bottom line here is that um, and I don't want to romanticize this moment because I know this is sensitive for uh, my Egyptian brothers and sisters. But in that very brief moment of promise, when Egypt underwent um, a, a brief opening thanks to the, the, the beautiful uprising of the Egyptian people, Gaza felt a little bit of relief. And, and this, this reflects, and I talk about this in my chapter, this reflects the relationship between how when, when people rise up, when people ask for a change, even within their local context, things, the benefits of that are felt by their neighbors and the people around them. Um, and that's why, you know, we're talking about a kind of politics that, uh, when we talk about a kind of politics that liberates all, uh, my family in Gaza will be amongst the first to feel the impact of that. Um, a lot can be said, but I would like to end with this point. Thank you so much, comrade. Powerful. Um, so I have one more question I'm going to ask you all, and then we have uh, a lot of questions we're going to try to get to from our uh, our audience. Um, so the last is, um, in the book, Sumeya, uh, we spend a lot of time um, talking about history, the origins of the Israeli state, the Nakba, uh, the history of the ideology of Zionism, the long storied arc of Palestinian resistance. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why um, this history is so politically important for organizing today. And I think that's actually connected to a question that we got from someone in our audience, from um, M. Letwin, who basically asks, why uh, do we consider liberating Palestine beyond just what was taken in 1967? But what does it mean to call for Palestinian liberation from the river to the sea? I think that dovetails with, with that question as well. So what do you think? <laughs> Um, what a question. Um, so first I'll say, make sure you read the first chapter of the book for like a, a good wholesome answer to this. Um, but, I'll, but I'll do my best right now. I think the, the first thing I'll say, and this is basically dovetailing on, on what Jihad was just saying, which is that one of the main things that we're putting forward in this book is a very simple argument. And yet one that, that people have not yet, um, fully embraced which is that the, the struggle for Palestine is a political struggle. It's not a humanitarian one. Um, we are not interested in humanitarian solutions because they only go so far. Um, and often they completely ignore the root of the crisis, the root of, of what we're facing. So uh, to answer this question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give three points. Um, the first is that uh, this is political, not humanitarian. Um, and what that means by extension is that the very nature of Israel is inseparable from that of settler colonialism. Um, so its existence today, as it's constructed, as this ethno-state, 
is inherently incompatible with justice. Um, and I think to really understand what that means, all we have to do is look back at how Israel was created, um, what gave rise to Israel. Um, and that takes us back to 1948. It doesn't take us to the last 10 years under Netanyahu. We know that uh, the brutality of Israel's um, colonization and occupation did not start with Netanyahu and will not end with Netanyahu. Um, it certainly did not start in 1967. It started in 1948 when Israel established itself as a state on indigenous Palestinian land. And its statehood came as a direct result of ethnic cleansing campaigns, of massacres, um, erasure, expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were dispossessed um, and who created this massive refugee population, um, those who survived. And then in place of these destroyed villages, um, homes, Israel built legal settlements. It built resorts and parks and other institutions that Palestinians are barred from entering. Um, and that's what we refer to as the Nakba, right, or catastrophe. Um, it's, it's an awful translation because it's such an understatement. Um, but I think that's the first important takeaway um, that, that I want to highlight, which is that Israel's occupation began in 1948 um, when, when Israel became a state. Um, and the struggle to end it is an indigenous struggle for sovereignty and self-determination. And uh, to really drive that home, I think it's more to understand that what happened in 1948 is not this historical event that we've moved past, but it's actually an ongoing reality for Palestinians on the ground and in the diaspora. And that treating it as anything but a reality reproduces Israel's contention that Palestine, that Palestinians are just representations of the past, that they don't exist anymore. Um, and, and, and that's what I mean by saying this is a political struggle. This is not a humanitarian struggle. So naming the Nakba is crucial. And there's a reason why Israel... Um, criminalizes any sort of commemoration of the Nakba. You, you can't commemorate the Nakba um, in, in, in Israel. So it's an act of defiance against Israel's project. It's also a defiance against fragmentation. For the last 70 years, what Israel has done is it's fragmented Palestinians um, geographically. So we have Gaza, the West Bank, Palestinian citizens in Israel and the diaspora, but also in a number of abstract ways um, in terms of identity, and, and the list goes on. I can't get into that very much right now, but I think fragmentation is is a tool that that Israel has used, um, just as other colonial projects have in the past. Um, and of course, fragmentation leads to this big gap uh, where it becomes very difficult to build a national liberation movement. Um, and instead, you have different uh, forms of uh, you know bureaucrats and opportunistic politicians, et cetera, filling in filling filling in the gap. And this is all by design. Um, so that's that's the first thing. And there's so much more I could say about the Nakba, but I think naming the Nakba, naming 1948 is crucial. The second is um, is understanding, so what led to this? Why did the Nakba happen? And I think to do that, we need to name the culprit here, and that is Zionism. Um, and we need to become more comfortable in our movements naming Zionism. Zionism is a political ideology that gave rise to Israel, that gave Israel ideological cover for its ongoing colonization of Palestine. And in the words of one of the founders of Zionism, Vladimir Jabotinsky, he says, Zionism is a colonizing adventure. So there is nothing liberatory about Zionism as it stands today, as this political ideology. And it's imperative that we name it because it helps us dispel myths about Palestine being um, a, a struggle between Jews and Muslims, a religious struggle, far from it. 
right? It's a political struggle. Um, and since its birth, Zionism has faced opposition from, from Jewish anti-Zionists who refuse to take part in this colonization um, endeavor. And, um, you know, I think it was today or yesterday, Stephen Salaita on Twitter pointed out and, and reminded me that much of the global South during the mid-20th century uh, wholeheartedly denounced Zionism and rejected it. These were all places where there were these decolonial struggles winning. Um, and you had this, you had Zionism um, emerging um, and Israel establishing itself. So the inherent racism of, of the Zionist projects helps us to explain why Israel's leaders historically and today have aligned with so many far right and uh, violently anti-Semitic figures from Hungary's Viktor Orban to Brazil's Bolsonaro, India's Modi, and the list goes on. Um, and that's also why it was so easy for Netanyahu to get cozy with Trump. Um, and, you know, I can't stress this enough, but all of this just shows that Benjamin Netanyahu is not an anomaly in Israel's leadership history, right? The far right, this violence, this dictatorship, this expansionist agenda that he stands for is exactly what the project of Israel has been committed to from the outset um, for over seven decades. And this is a project that Trump was committed to and one that Biden has already assured us all that he will do nothing to stop. So I think this should all serve as a reminder that the Nakba is not a thing of the past and that it in fact is felt by every single Palestinian and that its memory actually shields against the systemic attempt to whitewash the violence and bloodshed that characterized Israel's birth and that sustains it today. And the last thing I'll say um, with my last minute um, is, is the third thing that's important about naming the Nakba and naming Zionism is understanding that one of the core principles for any movement that's demanding justice for Palestinians and liberation is demanding the right of return. That is the right of every Palestinian that has been ousted from their home, from their land, to return home, to return to their land. And this includes Palestinians in Palestine. Um, and Palestinians in, in the diaspora. So today there are 7 million Palestinians who are forbidden from returning to their occupied villages, towns, cities, homes. And many of them live as refugees in neighboring countries or as immigrants overseas. Um, but the majority actually live within miles of their now occupied homes, where there are now settlements standing there that they're not allowed to enter. Um, and the reality is there's a generation of people in 1948 that were kicked out of their homes, Palestinians, um, that we're losing every year, that are dying. And my grandfather was one of these people. He died a year ago today. And he was never allowed to go home. And I think that this is... I'm going to drink some water. Um, wow, getting emotional in front of 400 people on, on Zoom. It's 2020 for you. Um, but, I mean, this is, this is the reality, right? So many people are, are, have not been able to return home. They passed away before they could go back. And it's up to us, to these generations that are coming afterwards, to demand that right and to see it, to see that reality happen, even if it doesn't happen in our generation, for the ones that that come after us. And I think this is a particularly important part of the boycott movement and why we have to demand that we boycott Israel until it upholds the demands of the Palestinian people and, and the right of return, I think, should be on the top of that list. And I'll stop there. Excellent. Cool. Well, we're going to take some questions from our, our viewers now. Um, we got a lot, so we're going to see how many we can get through before we have uh, have to call it today. Um, but I think also looking at all the questions, a lot of them are also taken up in the book. So I will glibly say, uh, you know, check out the book and all your answers are in it. <laughs> um, but um, I thought that uh, we start off with um, a question 
about uh, what do you specifically mean when you say Palestinian liberation? And I think that sort of digs in a little bit to Samaya what you were um, kind of ending with the, with the question of return. Um, but um, you know, talking maybe a little more about what do we mean when we talk about uh, liberation of Palestine? And so I don't know if Samaya or Jihad or Kuri, if any of y'all want to go take this one. I guess that's a few words. Okay. Um, ha, it, it, the liberation of Palestine means the reversal of the conditions Sumaya described. As simple as that. Um, you know, when, uh, and it means challenging a very uh, pessimistic vision that uh, the Zionist movement has. Uh, garnered and uh, and promoted throughout the decades that if uh, people um, live equally in historic Palestine, then all what we will witness is um, some sort of uh, a bleak kind of reality. So what's Zionism's solution is we create another version of bleak to prevent a hypothetical one. And this is exactly what um, trapping millions of people in refugee camps means practically. So to keep a certain demographic reality, you keep 2 million people as refugees in uh, uh, 1,700,000 people as refugees in Gaza, living in refugee camps. Uh, in an area with a population density of 13,000 per one square mile, while if they go, like if they walk for 20 minutes east of the fence separating Gaza and Israel, the population density is literally zero to 700 in one square mile. So this is this is what we're talking. We're talking about, you know, when we talk about the liberation of Palestine, you know, uh, certain people who subscribe to Zionism want to portray that event as one where tanks of Arab armies roaring through the hills of Judea. No, no, no. We're not, the, the, when we hear the, the word threat, it's attached to demographic. For them, just basic demographic imbalance represents a threat. What kind of, we have to ask ourselves, and I leave this to the audience, what kind of a vision is that, that is obsessed with maintaining a certain demographic formula? maintaining a certain uh, cultural and ideological outlook of a state, challenging uh, the connection and, uh, um, and, and, and the meaning of that land to millions of people because you know, of uh, mistrust and pessimism in a possibility where we could live together as if this is a foreign concept, as if humans haven't tried that and they succeeded. So what were liberation here means something positive and optimistic and beautiful and amazing and something that we should all embrace. We might not have specific answers on what will happen on day five after liberation, but our role is to realize that vision, to create it, to think together, imagine together, dream together. Um, and it's a positive thing. It's a positive act. And if, if people who live in Gaza today people who I personally know dream of a reality like this, 
us who live here, we surely can because we have the luxuries of electricity and hot water. Thanks. Thanks so much, comrade. Samaya, did you want to add anything to that? I think she adds at everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> totally. Um, so hopefully, uh, inspired by Jihad's words, uh, people want to get out and do stuff. Um, a lot of the questions that we've gotten are people asking about like initiatives they can be a part of, um, about BDS and what they can do, and also particularly about how many young Jews have um, come to not identify with the settler colonialism of Israel and, and are sort of fighting for, 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 for justice for Palestine and how they can get plugged in. So I thought maybe we could do sort of a little round and each of you could sort of say a little bit about like what you all think folks should do if they want to get involved. Um, and Curry, uh, someone also asked to talk a little bit about um, Black for Palestine. So I think we could just do a little round and, and people could talk about what do people do to get involved to, to continue the fight. So I don't know who wants to go first. Curry, why don't you go first? Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Black for Palestine is um, a network of black activists who uh, build solidarity with Palestine. And um, it came out of um, it came out of a, a really um, beautiful wave of solidarity between Palestinians and black folks in 2014, 2015, um, which involved the, um, you know, the horrific like Israeli uh, attack on Gaza in 2014, and also the Ferguson uprising that took place at the same time. Um, and it, it harkens to a whole um, rich history of, um, of Black Palestine solidarity, which you can read about in Palestine, a socialist introduction um, from Haymarket Books. Uh, so, um, but, but yes, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's where that came out of. And um, it actually connects with what I would say in terms of initiatives. Um, because there are comrades of ours in Black and Palestine who've been involved in campaigns to um, break ties between local law enforcement and uh, Israel. Um, you know, when we talk about U.S. support for Israel, it's not just the U.S. federal government, though, of course, that is, you know, tremendous in terms of its support of Israel. It's also cities across this country have police departments that train um, with Israeli uh, security forces, have politicians at the state and local level. This is routine for politicians, American politicians, to go to Israel and take trips and um, make trade deals, again, not just on the federal level, but on the state and local level as well. Um, and so there are campaigns. Uh, there was an incredible campaign in Durham, North Carolina, um, uh, calling for uh, breaking of those ties uh, between the police and, and Israel. Uh, there is an amazing campaign uh, uh, led by Jewish Voice for Peace called Deadly Exchange, which also targets those relations between uh, police departments here and um, in Israel. And so I'd encourage people to get involved in, in those, um, those campaigns. And, you know, when, when, when I was asked before about the question of imperialism and why do we build um, a movement against it, you know, I talked about the impact of imperialism outside of this country and how, why we need to stand in solidarity with our relatives abroad. That is critical. I also want us to think about what it means, what, what U.S. empire does to this place. Like, what does it do to this place that it emerged, it's not just that it has been at war for the entirety of its history, it emerged from war against the native population, which is an ongoing war, you know, against indigenous folks here. What does it mean to be permanently <laughs> at war? Um, and what does it mean to have these relations with Israel? Again, at the state, local and federal level, you know, it, it means 
yes, there's a financial piece about how our resources are invested into apartheid, but what it does to the culture, like, like whether you know it or not, whether you may not be aware that your, your local elected officials are going to Israel on trips or that your police are training in Israel, but it enshrines a culture of domination um, and violence to maintain inequality. That's what happens when, you know, the people who run this country are integrated with people who run an apartheid regime. And, and there are circuits of violence that feed each other. Um, so this is about, you know, that vision for liberation that you have so beautifully laid out and that Sumeya talked about the kind of stakes of, you know, this is so bound up in the question of our liberation. Like imperialism is obviously a weapon against Palestinians, but it's a weapon against people here as well. And we have to shake the whole thing off. Thanks, Craig. Sumeya Jihad? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways to plug in and, and to do something about about what's happening. Um, to, to pick up where Karee left off, I think, yeah, I mean, the, the land back campaign that's happening right now in the U.S. Um, demanding uh, uh, solidarity with, with indigenous people here um, fighting for their land, I think is just one of the first thing that comes to mind, because supporting that, uplifting that is supporting Palestine, right? both indigenous struggles. Um, and I think indigenous people here have already made that connection a long time ago. Um, most of us just need to catch up. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think another thing that, that, that Karee mentioned that's so important that's beyond just like specific actions or, you know, redirecting money and et cetera, um, is, is winning that ideological battle. Um, and I think there's, there's ways in which we are winning it, but there's some steps that we still need to take. Um, and one thing that comes to mind right away is Islamophobia. Um, we still have not, um, we still have not, uh, uh, really fully come to terms with the fact that Islamophobia is still rampant on the left. Um, and, and I think is part of the reason why the left is pretty weak on anti-imperialism. Um, so, so I think that's one thing, understanding how Islamophobia is used by Israel, by the U.S. government to justify a number of things from surveillance to deportations um, to the way that it silences, harasses, smears, blacklists, activists, um, whether it's for Palestine or other things. I think that is, is really key. Um, and then on a, on a more um, sort of like concrete level of, of things to do, I think there are so many different so many different campaigns. But I want to mention two in particular. Um, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and the Adala Justice Project, two Palestinian-led advocacy groups in the U.S., do tremendous work um, in shifting the narrative, in really driving home that this is political and not humanitarian. Um, and they have a great uh, Freedom is the Future platform that's sort of like a platform by Palestinians in the U.S. for what the demands are, for what we can do here. So I'd, I'd really urge people to check that out. I, I won't go through the, the, the demands, the tenets of that, but that's very important. I think on campuses, if, if people listening are students, um, there's so much work that's being done on campuses to uplift um, the, the call to boycott. Um, and there's so many ways that if that doesn't exist on your campus to, to find a way to bring that in, whether it's talking about um, um, Israel and climate justice, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's all land theft, right? What, what is Israel doing to Palestinian farmers? What is Israel doing to the land? This is all uh, a climate struggle. Um, or uh, talking about anti-imperialist feminism, um, the end of police brutality, et cetera. I think there's there's so many ways to connect what is happening in Palestine to the struggles we're seeing here today. And most of these, or all of these actually, what am I saying, are organic connections. They exist. We don't have to shove them in. They're there. 
we just have to unearth them. Um, so I think that's, that's really, really important. Um, and then I would, I would also say that, uh, you know, demanding an end to U.S. military funding to Israel is, is really key and is a very concrete thing that can happen with pressure. Um, and, and I mean, part of that, I think, is if, if you're not an organized socialist, become one. <laughs> you know, there are so many uh, uh, great initiatives happening. The Democratic Socialists of America um, is a good place to start. It needs a lot of work, but, you know, join it and, and, and do that work um, and, and push for for better politics on on Palestine. And also there are campaigns across the country that are not um, directly related in writing perhaps. Um, but the end the end goal of these campaigns helps helps us with with liberation um, in, in Palestine and elsewhere. And I think, you know, the 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 saying that that's been said a lot, but I'm gonna repeat it, that none of us are free unless all of us are free is is so key. So when people here in New York City say tax the rich to pay for the public transportation, to pay for healthcare for all, to pay for um, a, a number of things that means something, right? And we need to uplift that. And we need to understand that that is connected to the struggle against imperialism, against the U.S. system, against this Pentagon budget that is so bloated um, while, while most people are living, are, are slowly uh, becoming uh, uh, under the poverty line. So I think, I think there's a number of ways, I guess is what I'm saying, but, but here's a place to start. Thanks. Jihad, anything you would like to add as far as how people can get involved, initiatives, organizations? Absolutely. Um, the No Way to Treat a Child campaign for those who are in, engaged in electoral politics and organize on a local level is a campaign that uh, aims to pressure Israel to seize its uh, detention and mistreatment of Palestinian children. Um, the campaign has succeeded in pushing for the first ever bill in U.S. legislative history that is proactively pro-Palestinian um, and cares for a specific ask about uh, with regards to the Palestine issue. Um, so uh, go to No Way to Treat a Child uh, website, check it out, and uh, there are resources and you can learn more about how to engage. Um, and, you know, part of the shift that is happening there is that all of the Congress people who supported that bill, they were re-elected. There, nothing bad happened to them. So uh, it's reassuring. Um, <laughs> um, another thing is uh, I would like people to check out um, the Gaza Unlocked campaign if they are interested in raising awareness around what's happening in Gaza, which is an initiative by the American Friends Service Committee, who I have the honor of uh, the honor of being affiliated with, and it's Gaza gazaunlock.org and it, it's a campaign that provides resources um, and um, an up-to-date um, information on the situation in Gaza. And I, I would say that one of the most important things that we've done recently as part of the Gaza Unlocked work is uh, the production of uh, a, a short booklet uh, of essays written by Palestinian young people in Gaza in English uh, describing their life under blockade, um, which can be downloaded for free uh, on the website, in addition to a study guide that people can use uh, in uh, using this as a resource to educate themselves and their peers and colleagues um, in the university and beyond on the reality on, on the ground in Gaza from the perspective of young people who live there. So those are two things I want, I would like to highlight, and I hope people check them out. Thanks, Jihad. 
Uh, one other thing I would want to throw in is uh, people ask specifically about um, young radical anti-Zionist Jews and uh, Jewish Voice for Peace being sort of really the preeminent organization that is growing and is doing a lot of stuff. So recommend folks um, following and getting involved with them um, as well. Um, so we have uh, one uh, last question from the audience, and I'm going to go back to sort of concluding statements from, from y'all. Um, someone in the audience asked a question that I think sometimes we get quite often that is asking what happens with the um, uh, Jewish citizens of Israel uh, when we have liberation in Palestine. Um, I think sometimes you know, that's something that comes up. And so, Samaya, I don't know if you want to take a stab at answering that. Samaya, you're muted. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, now we can. Great. Take it away. Um, so, um, I think one, one thing I'll, I'll just start by saying is that there's a great chapter in this book that gets at the heart of this question that I would really recommend. Um, and it's about the Israeli working class. Um, so read that chapter. But um, I think that it's it's really important to first for the foundation to be that um, no one's freedom should come at the expense of another people's freedom. Um, and I think in Palestine, that, that's a very direct way to answer this question, that, yes, everyone deserves to be um you know, to live where they want to be, to be where they want to be, but not at the expense of indigenous people. Um, and the, the reality is um, that that's that's the uh, the excuse that Israel continues to use um, without realizing that the, the foundation needs to be no, your, your freedom should not come at the expense of my freedom, period. Um, I think in terms of the right of return and uh, what it will mean for people that live in in Israel, Jewish people that live in Israel, is people will will have to uh, will will face a choice of: Do we want everyone to be free? Do we want to live in a liberatory society um, where people's freedom, people's right to exist, the right to have dignity, the right to move, um, the right to be with family? Um, do we do we want that to be for everyone, or, or do we want it to be an exclusivist thing? And if it's an exclusivist thing, then you know they're going to have to contend with the fact that actually most people want to live in freedom, and that's what most people are fighting for, and that's what we're going to establish. And as as Remy Kanazi, the poet, who also has a great afterward in this book, this this project, this liberation project, will be freeing, will be liberatory for everyone, right? Um, everyone, whether or not they're involved in it. And so I think, I think that's, that's what we really have to hold on to and, and have to understand that, you know, why are we asking a question about, um, about, um, like, where does this question come from? Why can't we accept that Palestinians deserve to be free and that they deserve all of these rights, right? Cause that, at the heart of the, that's the heart of that question that maybe they don't because, if they are, then it means we won't be free too. No, Palestinian freedom will come with with liberation for more people. It's bound up in all of our liberation. It's not just bound up the liberation of the Arab masses, but but globally, um, it's an anti-colonial struggle. It's an anti-capitalist struggle. So there's there's no there's no um, separating it from from liberation for all. That that would be my answer to that question. Thanks, Samaya. 
Did anyone else want to add anything to that one or not? Just um, uh, maybe a, a word about, um, you know, the, the, the logic that either Jewish Israelis can live in this place or Palestinian Arabs live in this place. I've, I've, that's the logic of, that's settler logic. I mean, I, you know, like when I, when I learn about this and how I've come, because this question has been posed to me many times, I've learned from what Palestinians have actually said, which is quite different from that vision that it's, that it's an either, either one group of people or another group of people has to inhabit this place. And the other thing I'll just say, um, uh, folks can check out what Franz Fanon has written about what the, the liberation of um, colonized people means not only for colonized people, but also for settlers, um, as well as what James Baldwin has, has written about um, what black liberation would mean, not only for black folks, but for white folks. I've, I've found those readings really helpful. Thanks, Corey. Um, so we are nearing our time. So unfortunately, we're not going to get to every question. But as I mentioned before, it's all in the book. So uh, check it out there and we'll answer all your questions. Uh, but we wanted to sort of close with, I think, some final comments from, from y'all. Um, so, you know, the title of the book is Palestine, a Socialist Introduction. I think we've hit upon a lot of the themes and, and sort of hashed this through. But I think, you know, concisely and decisively, in the end, um, why do the, the movement for the liberation of Palestine and the struggle for socialism require each other? Um, and so maybe we'll take a jihad um, followed by Karee and then Sumeya. Um, just your thoughts on, on that to kind of take us home. So take it away, Jihad. Absolutely. Um, I, I, for, for me, the question is, the answer is clear, right? Uh, uh, movements that are about social justice, movements that are about economic justice, movements that are about um, the, uh, the creation of, um, uh, of uh, better societies, of a better way to live for us as human beings. Um, are strongly tied with a vision for uh, Palestinian liberation and for everybody's liberation, and uh, and this you know links to the very important question that uh, you, you know the one a member of the audience asked about the fate of people. Right? I mean, we we want to fight for a vision uh, for for people's emancipation, and I think um, you know uh, th there is a tradition. Uh, in in within the U.S. left and within people who embrace socialist politics um, of standing, you know, supporting, being on the right side of history and of resisting oppression and challenging uh, uh, the forces of um, uh, oppression and uh, and discrimination. And you know, to conclude, again, as I mentioned earlier. This is an exercise in the, the book, our conversation today, the, the work that is to come is, an, is part of an exercise of doing our best, right? We, we do our best, we try, we, but I think the challenge here, and, and I think the, the issue is not about doing what is easy to do because certain political and nationalist movements chose the 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 shorter path the easier path you can establish uh, an ethnic uh, settler colonial state put people behind fences close close things uh, in and have a lot of arms 
But does that provide justice? Does that provide peace? Does that provide quiet? Does that provide um, a sense of meaning and belonging, a sense of inner peace that people would feel? No, it doesn't. And that's that necessitates a different vision. And a different vision is not, and I talk about this in that chapter, again, please read the book. Uh, a different vision is not easy to do, and we should do it because it's not easy to do. Because we should we should do it because it's not it's difficult to achieve, and this is where the real work is, and this is why uh, we need to build these bridges, create these links, and and think about issues of social, economic, and racial justice um, as uh, as a, a core part of what defines our work together. Because at the end of the day, it's 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 about me being able to go home and see my family who I haven't seen in seven years. It's about, you know, this my generation and Sumaya's generation not die in exile away from their homeland. Okay? It's simple. And but the way to get there is not, but we have to make it so. And it takes work. And it takes understanding it takes knowledge and it takes reading and it takes organizing and that's what this whole conversation is about at least for me um so yeah let's do this it's not gonna be easy but it's doable trust me <laughs> <laughs> thanks comrade let's let's do this uh Karee. Yeah, thank you for such an incredible conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what Jihad, not only what Jihad just said, but what Jihad said a few minutes ago about how the kind of, there's this Zionist um, logic that says that if Palestinians actually achieve freedom, that that will somehow result in this bleak disaster. And so we are instead offering a Zionist bleak disaster. And what that looks like, I mean, among many, many other things, is a commitment of, I mean, it's not only a horrendous amount of violence, you know, directed at Palestinians in Palestine and all over the world. It is a commitment of this generation of Israeli Jews and every subsequent generation to military service, to being part of checkpoints, you know, to policing, a group of people who whose land this Zionist state occupies and walling off the country. I mean, you know, a lot of folks know about the Israeli wall across the West Bank. Israel is building walls on every one of its borders, you know, and that is that's that's the kind of Zionist logic. And it's very familiar with the what, what Trump has articulated, frankly, you know, where he's like, look, you know, we need to build a wall to defend this country. These refugees are going to come. They want to change your way of life. You know, we need to fight wars forever. We, and we need to rule through racist violence and, and, and misogynist violence. That, that, and, and, and that's just the way it is. You know, that, that's very much a U.S.-Israeli um, thing of creating this horrendous reality and saying that there is no alternative. And socialism offers an alternative. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole... It's a vision that's not only compelling, but it's so necessary for the survival of, of humanity. Um, you know, it's worth saying, like what Jihad was just saying about the right to go home, you know, what Sumeya was saying about the right of um, not only her generation, but the generation of people who were physically expelled from their homes of Palestinians, you know, everything we do to achieve that, which we I know we, will be achieved in our lifetime, 
you know, it makes it worth it. But for what it's worth, so much is actually bound up in that. Do you know what I mean? Like when Palestine gets free, like let's think about, let's appreciate the level of transformation that that would require in the Middle East, in this place called the United States and all around the world. Because it, it, this, this, I don't think this can happen cleanly in the current capitalist imperialist system. Do you know what I mean? You know, Palestine has been subject to Zionist colonization for roughly a century, you know, uh, uh, give or take. If there was a way to integrate Palestinian freedom into that colonial capitalist construct, it would have happened by now. It's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, similarly, black people, we've been in this place called the United States for 400 years. We have yet to achieve civic equality. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. <laughs> that means we need to fundamentally transform the relations here. So that's what we're talking about. And, and it, it's a question of freedom. And again, it's a question of, of humanity getting being able to survive. I mean, it, like, not only am I looking forward to Palestinians breathing freely, but when Palestinians are not having to survive, you, you know, um, are, are not having to have loved ones taken away in prison, and think, then, then we can actually, when humanity is freer, we can say, okay, now let's deal with climate change. <laughs> now let's deal with poverty um, and all of the ways that capitalism has, um, has debased humanity. And so that is really the, the socialist promise. It is... It is not just some adjustments to the existing world, it is a fundamental transformation of that world. And I think that the struggle for Palestine is going to be one of the key drivers of what is, I, I, I say with hope, a kind of emerging reaching all over this world for the past couple of years. People have been reaching for something different, something better. And the struggle for Palestine is a key part of that. Um, and I think that where it ends up is a complete social transformation. And that's what socialists have to offer. So that is our vision, as opposed to the bleak logic, uh, the bleak logic of colonialism and capitalism. Thanks so much, Karee. Himea. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, no one escapes from the grips of capitalism and, you know, not even our planet. And that's why we're like this race against time, um, where, you know, what, what, what will it look like in a hundred years? Um, I think it's, it's, there's one thing that Karee just said about how Palestinian freedom is such a threat to the existing world order. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, and, and I think Karee said it perfectly that it's because it will unravel everything. Everything will begin to un unravel. It will be a domino effect because Palestine cannot be free in isolation. Um, and I think it's 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 also telling of you know why it is that um, the U.S. government and 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 elsewhere as well, but have gone to the ends of the earth, like have fought tooth and nail to silence Palestine um, Palestine activists. Right, I'm talking about students on college campuses, right, that are harassed and smeared um, for for saying really simple things, for saying Palestinians need to be free. Um, uh, you know, laws that are passed in in dozens of states in this country um, criminalizing or attempting to criminalize um, boycotts against Israel. Um, this, this attempt to label anyone that dares to speak up for Palestinian freedom as, as anti-Semitic. So there is a, there's a whole war and, and it's a very well-funded war um, to, to silence it. And so when you just look at that, you have to think to yourself, 
like, wow, this, this is like a real threat. There's something there. There's a reason I should support this. Supporting this is a real threat to um, the existing world order. It's, it's a real threat to capitalism and imperialism as it stands. Um, so I think that's that's one thing. I think the, the other thing I want to point out is as the far right grows and as, as we um, see this increasingly polarized world, and, and especially here in the U.S., as, as we saw with the elections, um, we have to remind ourselves that the far right in the U.S. and elsewhere really sees inspiration in Israel's ethno-nationalist project. Um, they draw inspiration from it. And and there are many far-right figures um, who have who have said this, and I won't go into quoting them right now. There's also examples like the U.S.-Mexico border wall, um, the iron uh, the the Iron Dome project that that Biden actually fully supports um, and, and others. And these are all examples of this like white nationalist movement in the U.S. that sees Israel um, as, as a role model. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is you can't separate what the U.S. is doing abroad, U.S. foreign policy from its domestic policy. And I think Karee really laid that out beautifully earlier. So I, I won't repeat that. But it, that's so important to drive home because it means there's no such thing as, okay, well, let's figure out our stuff here and then think about what the U.S. is doing abroad. No, you can't separate the two. They come together. And so as we're building a socialist movement here in the U.S., we have to be thinking about what the U.S. is doing abroad. We have to understand that that is part of our struggle for freedom here, not not just because we support, you know, Palestinians against their oppressors, but in fact, because it's how we are going to be free. It's how we are going to win socialism here in the U.S., that these do not exist um, in isolation. And I'll, I'll end by saying, I think that history has really taught us that it is certainly not inevitable that we will win. I don't think that is true. It is not inevitable that we will win. But history has also taught us that we can win, that victory is possible. And I think, you know, we need to believe that. We need to believe that and really hold on to that. I'm actually going to end by quoting a Palestinian writer and political thinker named Rassan Kanafani, who is brilliant, and and everyone should look him up and and read his work. But there's a great quote, and I'm going to end with that. He says, the Palestinian cause is not a cause for Palestinians only, but a cause for every revolutionary, wherever she is, as a cause of the exploited and oppressed masses in our era. When Ghassan Kanafani said this, it was it was true. And I think today in 2020, it is more true than it's ever been. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks so much, comrades, for a, an amazing, um, powerful conversation. Um, and that kind of brings us to a close. I wanted to give a shout out to Haymarket Books. A uh, shout out also to the other contributors who didn't join us for this, but hopefully will join us for future events. So shout out to Shireen, Annie, Mustafa, Omar, Daphna, Taufik, Nada, and Remy. Um, and uh, last, of course, uh, buy the book, you know, get it from haymarketbooks.org or your local independent bookseller so you don't support Lord Bezos. Um, and don't just buy it. Um, don't just read it, but join the discussion. Um, use it as a tool to build a movement to carry out that project of reaching for a possible future away from the bleakness of capitalism and colonialism. And join us in fighting for liberation in Palestine from the river to the sea and for international socialism across the globe. Um, With that, I'll see you in the streets. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.